things that we're told are to give us satisfaction. And if you know the song, it's satisfaction in not, not finding satisfaction in the things that we have, in the relationships that we long for. Mick puts that, puts that slightly differently. Um, but it's this dissatisfaction, this idea that things are not how they're supposed to be, but that it's this take on it from a covetousness in our hearts and what we see around us. And this morning, we come to the 10th commandment. And most think of people would say, think of coveting as kind of one of those minor sins, like just wanting something that's not yours. That's just kind of minor, right? I mean, it's, it's not a big deal, right? God, God left it for the last one. Can't be that big of a deal. Doesn't seem to be in the same league as the quote big sins like murder and adultery. As one commentator confessed, it occurred to me that whoever approved the final order of these commandments didn't have much of a sense of suspense or climax. He put all of the dramatic indulging sins like stealing, adultery, and murder first and then ended with coveting. It would have seemed more logical to begin with the bland kind of throwaway sin like coveting and work your way up to the big stuff. Well, we'll see that God, what God had in mind and why he put this commandment last. Let's read Exodus 20, verse 17. Again, found on page 73 in your Spanish Bibles and 61 in your English Bibles. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that as we come to it this morning that you'd give us new eyes to see, new ears to hear. Lord, that something that we may have memorized at one point in our lives might be reminded to us today of the severity of what happens in our own hearts, of this desire that is a, un, a desire that goes against your will, your good. We pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear as I pray that you would help our lives be not only transformed by your word, but conformed to it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we come to this last commandment, we're reminded that all the commandments, if you remember going back to when we first started, we're giving in the context of God reminding us of his love for us. He reminds us in the people of Israel, and by extension us, how he rescued them and us, how he rescued us from bondage, how he rescued us from the land of Egypt. I said when we started this that each of us have our, have our own land of Egypt that we were rescued from. All the things that Egypt represented are the things that God rescues us from as he offers salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And last week we looked at the ninth commandment and we saw that where there is no truth, there is no justice. There can be no justice. And that the God full of grace and truth calls his people to tell the truth. We saw what lying is and what lying does, and we saw how truth-telling brings life. Today we come to the 10th commandment, 
And while, like I said earlier, it may seem like a minor sin, coveting is not viewed as a minor sin in Scripture, in the Bible. Coveting is condemned everywhere. Jesus lists it right up there with theft, murder, and adultery in Mark chapter 7. The Apostle Paul claimed that people who covet will not inherit the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians 6. He said, For this you may be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person such a, such a man is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Christ and of God. In Ephesians 5, in, Jesus said in Luke 12, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed or covetousness. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see, whether we are a Christian or not, we struggle with coveting. We may not think of it that way. We may not understand that in that sense, but that is what we all struggle with. And to help us understand what this looks like, one pastor coined the term, the cult of the next thing. And he describes the cult of the next thing this way. He says, the cult of the next thing is consumerism cast in religious terms. It has its own litany of sacred words. More, you deserve it. New, faster, cleaner, brighter. It has its own deep-rooted liturgy. Charge it, instant credit, no down payment, deferred payment, no interest for three months. It has its own preachers, evangelists, prophets, and apostles, admen, pitchmen, celebrity sponsors. It has, of course, its own shrines, chapels, temples, meccas. They're called malls or superstores, club warehouses. It has its own sacraments. The cult of the next thing central message proclaims, crave and spend for the kingdom of stuff is here. What we see is that rather than being satisfied with what we have or finding satisfaction, we always crave something else. Instead of being content or satisfied, we covet. But what we see over and over again is that there is hope for those who covet. Those like me, like you. I had a, a friend of mine post a Facebook uh, post a couple, was that what, two weeks ago as a joke? When Apple had their yearly uh, unveiling conference, whatever that thing is called. And he said, and he said hey, all you uh, Appleites, your worship service is starting in 10 minutes. You see, we are those who covet things. We desire things that are not ours or not what God has intended us to have. But what we see in Scripture and what we're being pointed to here in this commandment is that God has given all, He has given us all we need in Jesus, and we find our satisfaction in Him. You see, God has given all we need in Jesus, and we find our satisfaction in Him. And this morning, we're going to look at that by first by what is it what does it look like to not be satisfied? And then finding our satisfaction. First, not being satisfied. What does it mean to covet? Because like I said earlier, we don't, 
use that word all that often anymore, but to covet is to, in a sense, crave, to yearn for, to, you know, if you're kind of from the, you know, from the South, hanker for something that belongs to someone else. The Puritan Thomas Watson defined it as an insatiable desire for getting the world. And what he meant is all those things that could be good things, but wanting them in an unhealthy way. You see, because God has actually made us creatures of desire. To desire something is not wrong, but to covet it, it is. Our desire for food reminds us to eat. Our desire to do something useful motivates us to do work. Our desire for friendship draws us into community. Our desire for intimacy, including sexual intimacy, may cause us to seek to be married. We have many healthy desires. And the deepest desire that is healthy that we see in Scripture is the desire to know God. But like everything else, our desires are corrupted by sin. See, every aspect of our being is tainted or corrupted by sin, and our desires find the same thing. We often want the wrong thing in the wrong way at the wrong time for the wrong reason. And that's what God is getting at here in the Tenth Commandment. There are all kinds of things that we can covet. And usually we kind of think of coveting in the sense of material possessions. And rightly so, because the 10th commandment is actually focusing the majority of the 10th commandment on material possessions, right? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You know, at that, at that time, uh, servants were possessions, male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, or anything else that is your neighbor's. The commandment is focusing in a, in a large part on material wealth. You shall not covet material wealth that someone else has. Today, we might not be as interested in donkeys or ox, but we are interested in houses, usually bigger ones. We are interested in modes of transportation that donkeys would have been, like cars. We're interested in better video game equipment, which I know some in my household would, would agree with that. We desire better entertainment options, bigger TVs, bigger screens, cooler gizmos and gadgets. We covet clothing. We covet appliances. For those of you who like to cook and are chefs in the kitchen, we, like, we desire all kinds of things. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, Things are in the saddle and ride mankind. We usually call it chasing the American dream, but the Bible calls it coveting. What else do we covet besides material things? Well, the Tenth Commandment mentions one of them, other people that we shouldn't have thoughts or desires for, like our neighbor's wife. Whenever we engage in that type of fantasy, we are guilty of a kind of coveting. 
We're feeding a sinful desire that soon will demand and be gratified. And notice that the list is an exhaustive list. God doesn't just say, don't covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, servants, ox, and donkey. God kind of rounds it all out by saying, don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Nothing that is your neighbor's. We're forbidden to not covet. We're forbidden to covet anything at all. So what, is, what else is, is there included in this idea of coveting? Well, maybe people's attributes. You ever coveted someone's looks or intellect or age or talents? Have you ever coveted someone's situation in life? Marriage or singleness or children? Have you ever coveted someone's spiritual attributes, their attainments? There are all kinds of things that we can covet that aren't given to us by God. We are called by God not to covet anything at all. And one reason that coveting is so evil is because it leads to other sins. It's such an intense desire that it almost inevitably leads people to break other commandments. This is how sinful desires start. How sinful deeds always start as sinful desire. Kids, when I was, you know, about seven or eight years old, we, we used to go over to a friend's house that uh, they had grandchildren but didn't have kids our age. They had all these toys that their grandkids would play with. And I don't know why, I wasn't really into horses, but they had this really cool play horse. And we'd go over there and I'd play with it all the time. And when we'd leave, I would think, man, I really wish I had that horse. I desired to have that horse. I wanted it, even though I never played with horses. <laughs> but when I was at their house, I loved to play with that horse. For whatever reason, I wanted that horse. And the next time we went over to their house after having spent time desiring that horse and wanting that horse with everything that I could think about, I took the horse. And I went home and I hid it because I knew that I had not only stolen it, but I knew that my desire was not right. And I couldn't even play with it because I had to hide it to keep it from, being, from knowing that I had actually stolen it. Our evil desires, our coveting, almost always leads to us breaking another commandment. And what the Tenth Commandment does that the others only kind of imply, though we have looked and seen that in their imp in, in they're implying these things, they always get to the heart of the matter. What the Tenth Commandment does explicitly, it says, look, it's your heart that's the issue. It's your heart that is the, the problem. Because for all of us who say, well, I don't murder and I don't steal, well, I just confess that I've stolen. And I don't commit adultery and I don't do this and I don't do that. 
God reminds us in the 10th commandment that even if you kept, which you outwardly, all of these other commandments, which if you look at the other nine, they are all outward actions, the way that God states them. But in the 10th, he reveals that actually underneath all of those outward actions is the inner workings of the heart. And if God had not given us the 10th commandment, we might be tempted to think that outward obedience is all that we need to offer. But this commandment proves that God judges the heart. In case anyone misses the point, the command against coveting shows that God's law is not merely an external do this and don't do that. It is a spiritual law that speaks to the very hearts of God's people. Martin Luther said, The last commandment then is addressed not to those whom the world considers wicked rogues, because we can always point to all those other ones and say, look at how wicked those people are who, who murder, who commit adultery, who steal. The last commandment is, not ad- is addressed not to those whom the world considers wicked roads, rogues, but precisely to the most upright, to people who wish to be commended as honest and virtuous because they have not offended against the preceding commandments. This commandment, if we are honest with ourselves more than any other, convinces us that we are sinners who cannot save ourselves, who cannot keep the law, And it does this for the gracious purpose of showing us that we can't do it and therefore we need a Savior. The Apostle Paul describes how the Tenth Commandment Commandment exposed his own sin. In Romans 7, 7 and 8, he says, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. That's the Apostle Paul speaking of what ultimately brought him to his understanding of the depth of the gospel and his need for the gospel in his life. God's law against coveting is what convinces us that we are sinners in need of salvation. The 10th commandment takes away any notion that we are able to keep God's law. As Francis Schaeffer wrote, thou shall not covet is the internal commandment which shows the man who thinks himself to be moral that he really needs a savior. The average such, quote, moral man who has lived comparing himself to other men and comparing himself to a rather easy list of rules can feel like Paul that he is getting along all right. But suddenly, when he's confronted with inward command not to covet, he is brought to his knees. So much of the frustration of not being satisfied in life comes from wanting things that God has not given us. 
in our covetous desire, we concentrate on what we don't have rather than what we do have. Sometimes we say things like, if only about our material possessions, if only I made a little more money, if only I had a bigger place to live, if only this, if only that. And once we start thinking this, there is no end to our discontent. There is no way to find satisfaction. And you know why? Because those who have had the most (laughs) have said the very thing. In Ecclesiastes, King Solomon says that he has it all, and yet he still finds that that there is want in his life. Nelson Rockefeller knew the same thing. In his day, he was one of, if not the richest person in the world. And when he was asked by a reporter, how much money does it take to be happy? Rockefeller answered, just a little bit more. If that's the case, if the richest king at the time that he wrote, King Solomon, said the same thing as Nelson Rockefeller, who was one of the richest men at the time that he lived, said it's just a little bit more that we find our satisfaction. Where do we find our satisfaction? So we need to ask, we need to see finding our satisfaction. As long as we base our sense of contentment on anything other than what God has provided, we will be miserable. Our problem is not on the outside, right? This commandment doesn't really speak to the outside of us. Yes, it talks about the things that we covet, but it's not the outside that's the problem. It's the inside, it's our heart. And so if it's on the inside, if the issue is on the inside, if our dissatisfaction, if our inability to be satisfied is on the inside, there will never be anything, nothing will ever satisfy. It will never be solved by getting more of what we think we want. If we do not learn to be satisfied right now in our present situation, whatever it is, we will never be satisfied at all. And instead of saying, if only this or if only that, God calls us to glorify him to the fullest right now, whatever our situation is. Contentment, satisfaction, is the opposite side, the positive side of the last commandment, of the 10th commandment, is the remedy for a covetous desire. The Westminster Shorter Catechism in uh, question 80 says, the 10th commandment requireth full contentment with our own condition." with a right and charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor and all that is his. There is, before we move on to this understanding of contentment, there is a kind of discontentment that is pleasing to God. And this leads into how we actually find our contentment and satisfaction. The Bible describes it as a hungering and thirsting after righteousness. As the soul pants and faints and thirsts after God, Psalm 142. As a straining forward to what lies ahead and pressing toward the goal that Paul talked about in Philippians 3. 
When there is a discontent of wanting to do one's best for God, Paul tells Timothy to devote himself to diligence in the practice of ministry so that all may see his progress in 1 Timothy 4. There is a right dissatisfaction, a right discontentment. And and Jesus says that whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, our dissatisfaction, our uncontentment is only met in the well of water springing up to eternal life that Jesus provides Contentment means wanting what God wants for us rather than what we want for ourselves. And the secret to enjoying this kind of satisfaction or contentment is to be satisfied with God that we are able to accept whatever He has or has not provided for us. Ultimately, it is our relationship with God that we must understand and live in. So to, get rid of, of any, so to get rid of any covetous desire is to be completely satisfied. Completely satisfied with God and what He provides for us. The Apostle Paul found the secret to contentment. You'll recognize maybe these words from Philippians 4. He tells us, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul had learned to be that contentment was not found in his circumstances. It doesn't depend on our situation of life. And Paul says the secret to this is that I can do everything through him who gives me strength, Philippians 4.13. How often do we use that verse out of context? The context of that verse is not that I can do whatever the heck I want to because Christ gives me strength. The context is that in my discontentment, in my not having satisfaction, It is Christ who gives me strength. It is Christ who gives me strength. You remember that Paul wrote these words from a Roman prison, reminding the Philippians and us that our satisfaction, our contentment, only comes through Him who gives us strength, Jesus Christ. Paul found this contentment in Jesus Christ who gave him strength. You know, God the Father doesn't offer us the Son as a better way of getting what we want. God gives us Jesus and says, even if you don't realize it, He is all you really need. And you know, when it comes down to it, that's the message of Palm Sunday. That's why we need to be reminded every year of this holy week that we come to a place in, our, in our, the pattern of our year, whether we don't talk about it every, at, at all any other time of the year, we come to this place in this time of the year where we're reminded that even if you don't realize it, Jesus is all you really need. 
The message of Palm Sunday is, very, is exactly that. Like those who cried Hosanna as Jesus came into Jerusalem, we want God to give us what we want. They wanted a king who had kicked the Romans out and set the kingdom back up as they desired. They were not satisfied or content with the situation that they were in, and they wanted a king to make it right. Well, God gave them a king, but not the way they wanted. What do you want? Jesus is all they needed. And God is saying to you and to me, even if you don't realize it, Jesus is all you need. When we come to Jesus, we receive the forgiveness of our sins through his death and resurrection. We receive the promise of eternal life with God. We receive the promise that he will never leave us or forsake us, that he will help us through all the trials of life. We are given the promise that he is our strength that Paul talks about in Philippians 4 that helps us. What else do we need? And as for everything else, all the things that we spend so much time coveting, God says, trust me. Trust me. I will provide everything you truly need. Faith in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, is always the answer to our discontentment, is always the answer to our can't-finding satisfaction. Jesus said it this way, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The first thing, the main thing, the only thing that really matters is to trust Jesus and be satisfied in Him. He is enough for us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You promise to satisfy us in Your Son, Jesus. And Lord, just as the crowds on Palm Sunday had an idea of what they needed for their satisfaction, Lord God, we confess that we have ideas of what we need for our satisfaction. Lord, help us to trust you, to find our satisfaction in Jesus and him alone. Lord, give us the strength In Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.